Well, good afternoon, all. It was getting hot this morning, and I thought, well, shall I go out and sit in the yard a little while? I was thinking that, and suddenly had a loud clap of thunder sounded like right over the house. <laughs> Got cloudy and cooled off a bit, so that was nice. I, uh, I like thunder and lightning, as long as it doesn't hit me. <laughs> but, but if it does, I didn't know it anyway, so what's the difference? But uh, nonetheless, to me, it reminds me of the power and the might of God who made these things. And just a little, just a little glimpse of his power. <clears throat> well, let's go back to the book of Ephesians today. I've spent two sermons on this and made it through 17 verses, so we see how it goes today. But... I think the content here is probably as important as anything we can be discussing right now because we are kind of at the tail end of the Laodicean era and hopefully showing repentance and growth and overcoming at this point and getting closer to God instead of being meh and a little bit taking Him for granted. We should be getting warmed up quite a bit as a result of all that we've been through, and I hope it's been pointing us in the right direction. But the Ephesians had a very similar problem to the description of Laodicea, in that they had started out gangbusters, going for it, full of zeal and energy and first love, and then it had tailed off, and they had begun to take God for granted. So the first 17 verses here, uh, Paul has been reminding them who they are, what they are, and how absolutely fantastic our calling is with the promises that go along with it. Uh, we need to be reminded. We need to be inspired and strengthened and encouraged. And that's what really what he was trying to do here, is to motivate them to do more than they were, to be more on fire for God and for our calling. So with that thought, we continue in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. So he's trying to widen their vision the scope of their understanding of God and how powerful and wonderful He is and how we as mere mortal human beings have opportunity to be like Him. Uh, it's an awe-inspiring thought that most people on earth who've ever existed have never had. Uh, they don't understand why we're here on the earth. I had someone ask me just I guess it was early this week, uh, who's not in the church, what the most important thing is, what's the most important question to ask. He had an agenda where he was headed with it, but I says, why are we here? Why did God even put us on the earth? If you want to ask a question, ask that one, because there are only a very few thousand on earth who even understand that. I think I mentioned this last week. Maybe it was before this week. But 
nonetheless, they don't have a clue. And we do. We are not clueless. And these people weren't clueless either, but he's going over this to remind them and try to even, even expand their understanding, which they may have been losing. <clears throat> he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. You're not in the darkness anymore. You're in the light. We are the Illuminati. There are people who consider themselves Illuminati who are in absolute darkness. But if there's anybody that's illumined, it's us who understand the plan of God. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This had been preached to these people, and they had accepted it, and they realized that we're here to become God, to be the bride of Christ on the same level as God, not in charge, as Satan tried to do. The Father and the Son will always be in charge, but we will be working very closely with them in the role of a wife, subservient to our husband. Uh, it's a little... Difficult, I know, for us to understand as men being a wife, but I was pondering that a little this morning. It's, it's not about sexuality. God made us male and female and gave us families so that we might learn to work together, the husband being a loving, kind, gentle, thoughtful, willing to serve his wife and do anything he can for her and make her life easy instead of just being the omnipotent one who once served all the time. Uh, she is put in that role of being subservient and being second in command. And that's what it amounts to, is Christ will always be in command, and whether we were male or female on this earth, and whether we're the angels, I don't think so, in the world tomorrow or not, remains to be seen for sure. But we will still be in a serving mode to Christ. And a man needs to learn from his wife how to be subservient because that is her role. And he needs to learn to serve her and to treat her as kindly as gently. In fact, that's in Ephesians. We'll get to it. As kindly and gently as possible. While she is not full of rebellion... And yet she has rights too, and if she's being stepped on and pushed, sometimes she has to stand up for it. Uh, that's just the way that it is. But he expected us to learn to work together in peace and harmony and security as a reflection of how we will be with him forevermore. So these, this life is here to learn lessons, to learn how to be and how to do. And he's reminding us here of how high our calling is and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Again, we reflect upon the universe, the Milky Way, the sun, the moon, the beautiful earth he gave us to live on, and understand the working of his mighty power. 
and what he is capable of doing and already has done. So here is somebody who has been a success at what he has done. I'd say creating this earth the way it was is a tremendous resounding success. He got it done and he sat back on Sabbath and said, very good, very good. Now we've polluted it to the point where it's getting hard to live on this earth in some ways, and yet in spite of everything that Satan and man has done to it, it's still a pretty decent place overall, at least that part he made. So let's recognize the working of his mighty power, and then it reminds us of an even greater work than creating the earth. His power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, he made us as humans out of red dirt, and we became living souls. Now, that's quite an accomplishment. Mankind has been trying to do that now for a long time, and especially in this technological age. And they're trying to take the DNA from dinosaurs and everything from long ago and recreate it and be creators. And they can't do it. They can make robots, machines, uh, that have electrical life, but they don't have human living, breathing life. We can't do the simple things in that sense that God has done, but he's already taken that which was eternal, transformed him into a little human baby, had him grow up, and by his mighty power caused him never to sin. You and I can't imagine that kind of power. It hasn't been worked on us yet. He gives us a certain amount of his spirit, a certain amount of power to grow and to overcome, but he hasn't given us enough to be perfect. We are here to learn that this human life cannot be lived perfectly by any of us, and that we need something much more, much more than what we are today. And that's what Paul is explaining. But he put Christ, after he had lived here, and caused him to be dead, dirt, again, he would have turned to dirt without intervention, but he raised him up and then transformed him into spirit again. Now, creating us from dirt and giving us life is one thing. Taking that which had been dirt and transforming it into a powerful spirit being, second in command in the universe, is a far greater challenge, which he was well up to. And we should take hope in the fact that he was able to do that with Christ, and therefore he's able to do it with us. Now, without Christ, he couldn't. He can't. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So we would all die and remain eternally dead, never to breathe or think again, 
if Christ had not died for our sins, and his life was worth more than ours put together and all our sins combined, and therefore he paid our penalty, and God can through him raise us up and give us life eternal like he did Christ. So Paul is reminding these people of what our calling is and what God can do and has done. This should open our eyes. It should make us say, wow. And live, wow. Live with this constantly in mind of what our goal and our hope and our purpose is, is that there is someone who is able to make it happen even though we can't. I used to get jump fairly high off the earth, four or five feet. <laughs> now I doubt I'd get up much more than a foot, foot and a half. But I couldn't raise myself up to the throne of God, that's for sure. Not at all. And he put him in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So, Paul refers to the human body as a type of Christ and a type of the church in Corinthians, and goes through and talks about how God has put us all in the church as he sees fit, as different members of the body all fit together to work perfectly. Now, in practice, that has not worked beyond a certain point. They had all kinds of troubles and divisions and infighting and politicking in the early New Testament church. Uh, Paul mentions it in talking to some of the churches in his letters about how he had enemies and how there were those who had departed and there was a falling away. And, and he encouraged them as members of the body to quit fighting each other and making the body dysfunctional, but to work together in harmony. So it didn't work perfectly back then and it hasn't worked perfectly here in the end time either. Uh, throughout the history of worldwide, we had politicking and leapfrogging and uh, sins of all kinds within the church and lack of unity and harmony in many, many ways. Now, we had some harmony, some unity because of the truth of God and our attempts at living as God and His Son lived. But we fell short, and we had problems, and it finally got so bad, God just spit us out. And he said, now I want you to straighten up and overcome so that you can be a help to me in the end time, to do a work that I need done. And about 10% are going to wake up and do that. But the rest won't, and they'll go into the tribulation, and they will all die there. He does say in Zechariah, about a third will repent in the tribulation, in the fire, and they'll still die because the devil's after them and God has left them out there to be killed. But a third of them will repent before they die. Now, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to be there. I want to be doing God's work, and you do too, and that's why you're sitting here today. 
And we need to do everything we can to get as close to God as we possibly can with the vision of what is to come. I received an email early this morning. No, it was, well, I got up about 3.30, uh, couldn't sleep, and so I finally just got up and opened to see if there was anything important, you know, if the world had blown up yet or something, and uh, I had this email from somebody that's been involved with us minimally in some respects for ever since I was in CGG and recognizes some things about the Southwest Desert and what God is going to do and where. And uh, he drew an analogy in a type, which I essentially agree with, and really have preached, even though I didn't focus on it exactly the way he put it, but he's on the right track for sure. And I'll get to that uh, one of these weeks uh, after I have time to think it through and, and make sure everything is in order. But... Uh, uh, insightful, but he's looking for truth. He's trying to understand, and I appreciate it when there's somebody out there that I'm not in regular contract, contact with that is still studying and still learning and still growing and still trying to find everything true. And you know, we're here, and great love is the greatest thing. We don't have every doctrine perfectly correct yet. We're working at it, and we've corrected a lot of things. But having every doctrine correct is not the answer to the problem. You can have every doctrine perfectly correct, if that were possible, and still not have love. And without love... Nothing means anything. It's all for nothing to understand truth if we don't practice the truth in love to each other. He didn't say that men will know us as his disciples because we have every teaching correct. Didn't say that. He says that they'll know it if you love each other. Or close, close, kind, considerate, caring for, serving, giving, helping each other. Wow. Because no matter which church you go to in the world, they have various doctrines. Some of them have more love for each other than others. None of them have much doctrine right. But the real test is in our love for the Father and Son and each other. That is the real test. That is what the whole law and prophets hang on is loving God above everything and each other as ourselves. Um, so, the law and the prophets without love mean nothing. So, he's saying here, we have to be under his feet, subservient to him, thankful for him, looking to him, because that's our only hope. I have lots of former friends and relatives who've died, not converted, and they died without hope. Now, they have a hope they didn't know of. That's the second resurrection. But they didn't know it when they died. And some of them thought they were going straight to heaven. And uh, they haven't waked up there yet. 
they're still dead in the ground. For you and I have an eternal hope. Chapter 2, And you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Quickened means made alive. Made a different life, a new life, a better life, a superior life. Because you were breathing before you were called. You had a human life. But he's speaking here of a spiritual life that has been instilled within you. It has not been fully fulfilled yet in the resurrection and the glorification, but it has been planted. It is the earnest of our salvation. So this is special, is the point he's trying to get across. Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. When I was a Methodist, I was in the course of the world, living according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan's system. It doesn't matter where you were. If you didn't understand God's truth, you hadn't been converted and given his spirit, quickened by it, a new life, beginning in you, like a baby conceived in his mother's womb, and then growing toward ultimate real life, breathing air. That's why he uses the analogy of an unborn babe and how we're conceived of his spirit, and then we grow to eventually be born into his kingdom. Begotten now, born later. But that's the best the people out there in the world have, no matter if they're religious, unreligious, or whatever they are. They're just walking according to Satan's system and way. Selfish, greedy, uh, narcissistic, wanting for me, who cares about you, I'll climb all over you to get where I want to be. You know, on and on it goes, things you've seen and experienced with the children of disobedience. Uh, among whom also we all had our conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, uh, and of, I can't read that, the mind, I had it marked over, and were by patience, or by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. God's wrath comes on sinners, and the world is living in sin, and we were out there with our selfishness and covetousness and desires of the flesh, giving in to them in so many, many different ways, and had no hope and goal for the future. And, you know, that's really what's lacking with our friends and neighbors here in the USA. They have no clue of where they're headed or why, and that there is a God who's working a plan and a purpose down here, and they're completely void of understanding of what it is. And that's just the way we were. And if you try to tell them about it, they don't like it. The carnal mind is enmity to God. Just the normal, everyday human mind. Not the worst of criminals. Just the normal human mind is enmity to God in His way. 
It wants to do what it wants to do when it wants to do it, and it doesn't want anybody or anything to tell it different. Now, that's the exact attitude of Satan. I'm tired of you telling me what to do, God. I'm just as good as you are. Matter of fact, I think I'm better than you are. And therefore, I'm going to take over. And Korah tried it, and Ananias and Sapphira tried it, and others have. And it didn't work out too well for them. And it's not going to work out too well for all these people out here on this earth. They're going to die real soon now. And they've already started dropping. The deaths from the shots and boosters are beginning to increase. People are just suddenly dropping dead. They didn't know any better. They just thought, well, okay, I'll do that because I want to save me. And instead, they're dying. We know a better way. Verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conduct in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, I already read that, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now we're coming down to the critical part of this. Sinners though we were, Against God, though we were, enmity to Him, even though as we were, He loved us. And was certain among the people on the earth, a very few, that love extended to forgiving our sins and quickening us and putting within us the earnest of glory, of salvation. Now, that's great love. Even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Unmerited pardon. Pardon we did not deserve. Let me tell you a little story. Something I heard yesterday. I have a granddaughter who grew up knowing the truth, basically, and then the family went after an incredibly false prophet, and they got derailed for some time, but now they're away from that, and they're growing toward truth again and learning. But she, having been baptized, was dating out in the world and had this boyfriend and he played with guns a lot thought he knew them inside and out no problem with guns his dad and his mom were both a cop and uh, he played with guns a lot and he'd pull out his gun and play with it and in the house there where my son's family lived he'd pointed at people and my son finally told him, if you point that gun at anybody one more time, you'll never come in this house again. Of course, he thought it was perfectly safe. He knew what he was doing. The clip wasn't in, and so on. So, my daughter was driving my son's, my grandson's, my 
daughter, my granddaughter was driving my grandson's car, and he was sitting over here playing with his gun, 357 mag, and she stopped to send a text alongside the road. And he was fiddling with the thing, and of course it was unloaded. And she was sitting there in the chair looking at him, and he put it up to his head and pulled the trigger. And his bones and brains and blood spewed all over her, completely dissolved his head. Terribly traumatic for her. And there's more detail to the story, but uh, that was hard for the family to digest. So traumatic to her. Uh, being pregnant. And on and on. She knows a certain amount of truth. And here's somebody who didn't know a thing. I don't, I don't, at least, and she doesn't think he did it intentionally. He just thought he knew all about guns and that there wasn't a problem. So he was playing with it and now he's not playing dead. Uh, he's playing dead. Where's his hope? Where's her hope? Now his hope's in the second resurrection but he didn't know anything about it. He was just living according to the lust of the flesh and going about his way. And then it ended right there. And I doubt she'll ever in this life get over having his head blown into her face. And the bullet missed her as it went on through by about two inches and went through the roof of the car. I hope it's a wake-up call for her. I hope she begins to take more seriously the things of God and grows up herself. An awful thing. But maybe it's a wake-up call. Maybe God is working with her, and he needed in a very dramatic, would you say, fashion to wake up. Now, the tribulation is going to be similar to what I just described to you. Nauseating. Scary. Sickening. Paul is giving us a wake-up call here. He's only doing it in words. He's not doing it in the way that my granddaughter got a wake-up call. And I sure hope she heeds it. And I hope we heed. I hope we're listening. I hope we read the news and understand where this whole thing is headed. And even more so, read this book and know for sure where it's headed. And we... Get more zealous, more excited about our upcoming marriage to Christ himself. Now, she was going to marry this, what shall I say, stupid idiot. Uh, I remember a preacher up in Alaska used to say there's only one cure for stupidity. And uh, he found it. He's not stupid anymore. He'll come up in the second resurrection in a whole different world, and probably he'll be a lot smarter than he was on this earth. But if her chances now, and you're and, you're and my chances now, hadn't we better be awake? 
I don't want God to have to do to you and me anything that awful, that horrible, and that traumatic. I want us to be converted enough and calling on God for His Spirit enough that He doesn't have to do things like this to us. Spewing us out of church and making us uncomfortable hopefully is enough to wake us up and to get on fire and quit being lukewarm and lackadaisical. Hopefully. If not, he does have other methods. He does. And he can use them as he sees fit. But he has called us in love. And he wants us to have the kind of love that he has for us. If we're going to marry him, we need to have as much love for him as he does for us. Actually more. Him being God already. Most human marriages, at least in the experience of the ones I've seen and worked with and dealt with, most human marriages have one of the partners who loves more than the other. That's just the way it is with human beings. Once in a while there's a marriage where they both love heart, mind, body, and soul each other and would do anything for each other and die for each other and on and on it goes because there is so much closeness there. But that's fairly rare. And usually, the husband or the wife, one cares more than the other does. And they, to some degree, struggle with that throughout their marriage. Because it creates difficulties, minor and even major. But it's just a fact of the way life is. Some people, by nature, are more loving than others, for instance. And it's hard to get a perfect match. It's just rare that you have a perfect match. And even then, we're all imperfect, so even if it's a, let's say, a perfect match, there's still trouble to one degree or another because we're all still human and struggling to be what we need to be. So what we have to do is become like Christ, to walk as He walked, to think as He thought, and control our minds and attitudes so that our direction is within those parameters, that we're like Him. But our, our nature is to steer off this way and that way and the other way and down and all over the place. So it's hard to live up to. But He is patient. He is loving and kind and sweet, if you will. And he does everything he can to help and guide us along the path, to help stay out of the ditches on both sides, which we're prone to go off into. He works with us. He says, God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, an unmerited pardon is what saves us. Not how great we are and how good we are and how wonderful we are as humans and Christians. 
It's still by His pardon that we're saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So He's called individuals by name, by personality, and He's put us together in a body, the church, which represents His body, which is perfect and works perfectly. All the parts of His body work perfectly together. So He's put us here together. And He wants us to live and learn to live in perfect harmony so that all the parts fit together the way His own body fits together. His legs, His hands, His ears, His eyes, His mouth never betray Him. All parts of Christ work together in absolute harmony. And we are to become one with Him, which means we're married to Him, and we don't become one flesh with Him, we become one spirit with Him. <coughs> so our spirit and attitude is in perfect harmony with Him. Now that's a mighty chore to be able to accomplish that. It was one thing to create us as physical human beings. It is another level entirely to raise us to the character and the living like he is and does. But he is capable of it. He's going to do it. He's already put us together to sit in heavenly places. The church is a heavenly place then. His Spirit in us, together in the congregation, is a heavenly place. And His throne, when it comes down here, is not going to have liars and thieves and adulterers and murderers and all those things in it. They'll be banned from coming into the city. Revelation 21, 22 it is. So we have to cease from all that, not being part of this world anymore, and come to walk in the Spirit. A big challenge, but He's patient and loving and kind, and He's already given us a down payment. We need to be really thankful for that down payment. You know, if you're trying to sell a house and you can't, you can't, you can't, nothing seems to work, and then somebody comes along and drops an earnest payment in your hand. Oh, what a nice day of joy. And then maybe a down payment and then a payoff from the mortgage company, and you're free to go. Wow! Well, he gives us an earnest, his spirit. Hasn't changed us into spirit yet, but we have his spirit working in our minds. What an awesome thing that is. That's, just, that's all he's explaining here. I'm putting it in different words and expanding on it a bit. Uh, but that's what this is all about. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That forevermore, through the ages to come, he'll keep showing us the exceeding riches of his grace. In kindness. God is sweet and kind and loving and gentle. 
He's just a pleasure to be around. And when we get around him, we're going to appreciate that. Now, we should be learning to appreciate it now because we do have a relationship with him as a father. I was thinking on that some this morning that I never want to lose and even have greater a sense of awe and excitement and fear toward God because he is so much higher than you and I are and there is a great gulf there between us between mortality and immortality and he holds the key to life and death and whether I live forever or not is entirely up to him no matter how many good works I do down here it doesn't matter and we'll see that in a moment it's entirely up to him whether he transforms me into spirit or not and I stand in absolute awe and I stand in fear that if I don't live up to what I should I won't make it so I don't want to ever lose that awe. But I was in my thinking contrasting that to all these scriptures about how he's our father and we're his dear children and how much he loves us and is kind toward us. So even with the awe and fear that is there and the fear of God the beginning of wisdom, there still is a personal relationship there where we can call him Abba, Father. I can go to him as a son on this earth goes to his own father and ask for this or that or the other thing, for food, <laughs> for warmth, for heat, for whatever it is my body needs. I could go to my father even when I was just about that long and would come in off a trip and I was asleep in the back seat and I knew waking up when I heard a car door open and slam that I needed to not be in the car, I needed to be in bed. But I was so nearly asleep that to me, getting from that car seat to the bed was almost impossible. How is this going to be accomplished? So I'd say, Daddy, and he would pick me up out of the car seat and carry me into the house and lay me in my bed. Wow. What an act of kindness. When me and my little child innocence and fears, didn't see a solution, there was Daddy. Almost makes me cry to think back on it these many, many years later when I've carried my own children in the house, you know. But he is that kind of personal father, along with being awesome. Now, in my little child eyes then, my dad was awesome. As I grew older and older, he became less awesome. <laughs> because I was growing up too. And he wasn't as awesome as I had thought. As I saw his humanity and so on. 
But you know what's different with God because I'll never see His humanity. I want to always be in awe of Him because He is awesome more than my father was. But at the same time that I have that awe and fear, I want to have that close personal relationship and talk to him like daddy. And find the balance there of a close personal relationship and yet standing in awe of the creator. You, you have to have both. You need both. Because he loves us that personally and that lovingly and that individually that he counts the hair on our head. And you have to love somebody quite a bit to do that. None of you have ever counted your mate's hair or even your kid's hair. Well, some people can look at their husband and count his hair pretty quickly. <laughs> but that's not much of a count. But he loves us that much, and he cares about everything about us that intimately and that infinitely. And then we need to return that kind of emotion to him. Love is the keeping of the commandments, which cause us not to hurt or offend God or man. But love also, properly demonstrated, shows a lot of kindness and gentleness and caring and thoughtfulness and all those things that we desire to be done to us and then have trouble doing to others. So it's, it's a line we walk, trying to have the relationship both ways. Awe and fear with gentle love. He is capable of walking that line. And we are working at it. Then he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even faith is the gift of God. Trusting Him, believing in Him, believing Him, He has to give us. Because before he called us and opened our mind, we didn't have that. And then as we learned the truth, we began to step out in his direction to do the things he wanted us to do. Because we had begun to believe in him and trust him. He having opened our minds and started us in that direction. So he says, it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, the Protestants run with that and say, well, we don't have to have works. It's all by grace. Uh, they misrepresent what Paul wrote and didn't take the whole thing in context, and we'll see that. But uh, I want to go back here to Revelation 2 again and remind us of what uh, John wrote to the Ephesians. Verse 2, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you can't bear them which are evil. Now, you might say that of us. We've done some good works and we do hate a lot of the evil we see around us. 
and tried those that say they are apostles and are not and found out that they're liars. But what he has against us is that we've left our first love in verse 4. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or I'll come and remove your candlestick. So, Paul is saying the exact same thing to the Ephesians that John did later on. They had not, if you will, hearkened to Paul in the way that they should have. They didn't listen to this letter as much as they ought to have. And therefore, John, writing maybe decades later, told them the same thing all over again. But you need to have those first works. You need the love that you felt at the beginning. It must be hard to regain once it's lost. And that's why God is going to put people through the great fire of tribulation is so that they might wake up and learn and repent. I hope, I hope that you and I can accomplish this ahead of time so we don't have to be put there. I hope we don't go through what my granddaughter just went through. I hope it doesn't have to get drastic. Because God wants us, or He wouldn't have called us. And He's willing to do whatever He has to do, including the great tribulation, to get us to straighten up. And then, even then, everyone won't. And He's already put us through a great tribulation, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, in the church. And only 10% are going to wake up. So when we read this, and we focus on this, we need to take it more seriously, not just another sermon, not just another letter from Paul, not just 20 or 30 years later, another letter from John. This is coming from God's Apostle Paul and God's Apostle John. It has been canonized by Jesus Christ as part of the Bible, the Word of God, and He means business. He wants us in His kingdom. And if we will repent and be part of His end-time work of warning the world, and that's still to come, then we'll be in His kingdom. And if we go into the tribulation, the chances about one out of three, it appears from Zechariah, that we'll repent before we're martyred. So this has some pretty far-reaching uh, Consequences. This serious stuff right here. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's God's faith working in us. It is the gift of God that He gave us, and we're to grow in that faith. Will He find it when He comes? Apparently not much. So it's up to the few who have been given faith to cause that faith to grow and our trust in God to grow so that we don't go the way of this world. Are we going to be like the sheep of this world who, here comes the disease. Let's get a shot. Let's get a booster shot. Let's save our lives. 
That's just the beginning. This is a very small beginning of what they're going to bring on us. Now they're working hard at removing our food. And then we are going to go into panic and starvation mode and start robbing and killing each other in order to eat and live as Americans. That's exactly where this is headed. You can't trust your neighbor at all. He'll kill you and take your food. And then it will get to the point where you can't trust your neighbor at all because he'll kill you and eat you. And I could go further with this, but it upsets people, makes them nauseated. But God says it. So what's it going to be? Are we going to wake up now and have faith and trust in God? Because you know what they're going to offer when you start starving to death? They're going to offer you a monthly allotment so that you can go buy food with that government allotment. They've already started it with the different programs to give people money to eat on, food stamps and so on. But it's going to get more where you can't buy or sell without that chip in your hand or your forehead, and you can't buy food without it. And there are a lot of people in this nation who right now are conservative patriots against what's going on, but they're not yet starving to death. And when they are, they're going to line up and get their chip because they don't want to starve to death. To them, it'll be the only way out. And indeed, it will be the only way out. Otherwise, they're going to die. Satan set this thing up. It's coming upon us like a freight train now. They're destroying food that's in freezers in Costco and Walmart and Sam's Club in Billings, Montana. Did last week. 60,000, I think it was tons. Might have been pounds. Of frozen food. They claim the freezers quit for a few hours. Took it to the landfill and had people out there in suits burning it all. This is getting real and more real by the day. They're not just killing chickens and cows. Now they're taking food that has already been processed in the stores and destroying it. <coughs> Klaus Schwab, oh Schwab, I'm sorry, just got together with the head of the UN and they said that they're going to accelerate their 2030 project. 2030 project was to have the population of the Earth decimated by 90%, basically, by 2030. America only having 90, about 100 million people left by 2025. Now, they're accelerating that. They're going to do even more to take our food away and give us more drought, more crops failed, and destroying the food. Shutting down trains and trucks. It's going on and on. It's going to get so bad, the people will look to the government just to stay alive. How much faith in God do we have? Are we going that route?
Oh, we didn't get a scotch. Maybe we won't get a chip either. But God is urging us to have that kind of faith. By grace, you are saved through trust in God, not trust in Satan in this world. What if you do starve to death in the faith and are resurrected in the faith? You're way ahead of those that took the chip and are going to go into death, some of them permanently. Well, with a brief resurrection, a third, but uh, death forever. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So that's where the Protestants stop reading, is by works. And then Paul said, Not of works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, if God ordained this before the foundations of the world and created everything and set up the structure the way He did, He foreordained that we should have good works. So how can you then say we don't have to do good works? Now, works won't save you. It is... God's mercy, unmerited pardon, through faith in Him. But He created us to do good works. And part of His evaluation of whether He wants us in His kingdom or not is whether we work and do as we should. And love our neighbor as ourself, serve and help our neighbor then he sees that we would be serving and helping and giving and loving for eternity. If we could do it with our selfish human nature attached, then he knows that with a different mind, we would do it forever. Not wanting to come back to this. I've not had it with this, haven't you? Some of you are younger. Yeah. You don't think that way yet. But when you're as near the exit as I am, um, you think about it. Lived a long time, and the world that I grew up in is not anything like the world I see today. Nothing like it at all. And it gets worse every day that goes by. And even you young ones ought to be able to see this. But that world out there is not a very good world. Don't want it. Don't need it. So, we're created to do good works. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So he says, you weren't even of Israel or Judah and even circumcised And here you are, having been given the Spirit of God, quickened to dwell in heavenly places together in the church, working together as a body. And he's saying, what a wonderful intervention God made to bring you here. Because salvation was first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And God began working with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the others, 
long ago. And you were left out. Ham and Japheth were not included at all. And only of Shem, those which were in the line of Abraham. A lot of white folks that weren't of, Ab- weren't of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Might have been of Abraham and Isaac, but not of Jacob. Keturah, and all the sons and daughters she had from Abraham. Basically white folk, but they're not Israelites. That had to come through Jacob. <coughs> so he's saying, you had no hope whatsoever. Even Christ called them dogs. And that's what they were generally referred to as dogs. You bear a dog? Does that feel comfy? Does it feel racist? <laughs> but that's what they were. And then God, in His mercy, called the Gentiles, and He says it doesn't make any difference anymore what your physical race is, Shem, Ham, Japheth, or any mixture of the above, you can be part of the kingdom of God. He intended that all along, but He started out with someone who would listen to Him, Abraham, but no one else would. So He worked with through whom He could. And then later, he began to expand it. That at the time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Not a part of it at all. Aliens. And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Well, look at some of the peoples and nations today. No Asians, basically. A few that lived here, and just a very few in Malaysia or here and there who were called in worldwide, but not very many. You go to India, China, all these places, Japan, they don't know anything about God. And they have very, very pagan religions with Buddhas and other gods. They don't know anything about God. Total aliens. Like little green men from Mars. That alien from the kingdom of God. And now, they've been included in the commonwealth of Israel. Now there's a kind, loving God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. Just as close as anybody else. doesn't matter your race. It's your attitude. It's your heart. It's whether God has opened your mind and put His Spirit in it. That's what counts. For He is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There's been a wall of Satanism between us and God. Satan and this world and our sins had cut us off completely from God. No relationship, whatever. And now he calls us his dear children. Now he puts his arm about us and hugs us in love and is kind and patient and gentle with us. 
And if we still have that mm, attitude, then he applies something to our behind that hurts. It can be a gentle chastening. Or like my granddaughter, it could be blood and hair and eyeballs all over the side of your face. In front of your face, because she was looking at him when he did it. God can be very gentle in his chastening, and sometimes he can get our attention. Wow! Maybe that's a very dramatic example, but I just heard it yesterday, and it's still working on me. Our God is a consuming fire. And yet he is a very loving, gentle, kind person. And if he calls us, he wants us in his kingdom. <coughs> and he will do whatever is necessary to get us there. And the only thing that can take us out of the book of life is us. Once he puts us in there, it's permanent. He didn't pencil it in. He wrote it in an ink. And we're the only ones that can remove it. So he has great positive hope. He has great faith in his capacity to bring us to salvation. And he's going to bring all Israel ultimately into salvation by the time the great white throne judgment ends. And most Gentiles will have by then become Israelites. And he's going to save most people. I believe that because he is a very successful father in rearing children. He knows when to be kind and gentle and loving, and he knows when to spank. He's broken down the sinful wall of partition that was between us and a relationship with him. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances were to make in himself of two one new man so making peace. There has to be growth in us in order to be totally at peace with the Father and the Son. And we have to break down this carnal human ordinance the self-commandments that we walk by and live by and follow His commandments. You see, most people out in the world have their own law. They have their own code. And to them, thou shalt lie, thou shalt steal, thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt kill if you feel like it, uh, you shall worship yourself above all others, and you can covet all you want. That's the law of human nature. That's the law we all lived by. And coming out of that is a challenge, is it not? Day by day, moment by moment. That's what he's done for us. So what he's trying to do is impress them at all that God has really done. And that therefore they ought to be motivated strongly to overcome and grow and be like Him so they can be in His kingdom. He's holding out that hope <clears throat> that we might be one with Him, reconciled in peace. 
and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the stake, having slain the enmity thereby. It is only through his death and resurrection that we can repent and receive his Holy Spirit and forgiveness of our sins. What an incredible thing that is. What he's done for us. We were destined to live and get sick or old and die. And that was the end of it. Unless there was intervention. And there was and there is. So, he came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were near. To both. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So who needs help? Those that were far off and even those who were near. Everybody needs help and his grace and his mercy and his motivation to be in his kingdom. So by one spirit we have access to the Father. Now, the Father and the Son are very close. They are very dear to each other and very kind and loving to each other. And they never have a cross word of thought with each other. Now, that's where we are headed. We are far from it. We still have cross words with each other and ourselves. We have crosswords and motivations with God. We're just not there yet. But we're being motivated, hopefully inspired, to go there and do that. That's what this so far is all about. And then he gives us some encouragement, verse 19. Now, therefore, that we have his Spirit... You are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, you and I, even though we might have some Israelite blood, most of us, varying, 5% or 95%, we don't know. But spiritually, we were Gentiles. No access to God. And then by His Spirit, we become spiritual Jews, no matter what our racial mix. And he was talking to people who were primarily Gentiles and had to be brought all the way into fellow citizenship. You don't just get a green card. You don't just get an illegal driver's license and a check. You become a fellow citizen with God, with Christ, and with each other. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we're pictured here not as the body. Here we're pictured as a building. And the cornerstone of the building is Christ, and the foundation with him is the apostles, and we have been added as building blocks to the temple or the building of God. So he uses the analogy of the human body. Then he uses the analogy of a building. And it has to be put together right. If you've ever built a building, 
you try to get things lined up fairly straight, and where they're square, you try to get them upright, you try to get them where they look pretty nice when you're done, instead of being leaning that way and that way, and holes in the roof, you use quality parts, and you put them together right, so that you have something worthwhile when it's done. So that's the analogy uses, and you couldn't have a better cornerstone and foundation than Christ and the apostles. Don't get any better than that. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple to the eternal. Your being formed is building blocks to be part of the temple of God. Now when the New Jerusalem comes down in Revelation 21 at the beginning of the millennium, the Father and the Son are the temple of it, and the 144,000 are the city of God, the heavenly city. So we dwell with them fitly framed together. And if you read what that building is formed of, it's transparent like see-through gold. It glitters and shines and has beautiful, colorful oysters as the gates. Wow. Beyond human grasp, the beauty of that temple. And we are an integral part of it. The walls, the size, everything has to do with 144,000. Do the math. Go back there and look at the math. It's all multiples of 144,000 of the saints of God become the bride of Christ. He says he saw the holy city coming down, and it was her. We will be resplendent in our married beauty, beyond our imagination. You know, we look at each other today on this earth, maybe, and we have our scale of 1 to 10. And uh, <clears throat> some of us get up to 4 or 5 or 6 or 7, and that's about it. We're all going to be 10s. Everybody is going to be resplendent in the beauty of God, fitly framed together, no ugly duckings, no stupid ones. Everybody is going to be smart, and they're going to be intelligent, and they're going to be full of love and kindness and gentleness as the Father and the Son are, and there will never be a crossword between and among any of us. I know that blows your mind, and it's beyond your experience and mine. But that's where we're headed. How much motivation do we need? <clears throat> never cry again. Never hurt again. Never die again. Total security and peace and harmony. Never to hunger. Never to thirst. To drink wine with the king. Wow. In whom you also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. God wants to live in us. Now, if we are the city of God, and the Father and the Son are the temple in the middle of it, as Revelation 21 says, then they are surrounded by us. That's his whole goal and purpose, is to be surrounded by us. 
I hope we find motivation in that. 